Welcome into a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman coming to you from Blue Wire Studios at the Win Las Vegas. And today it's the deep dive of the Charles Schwab Challenge. That's right. We're going back to Colonial, maybe a little bit of a major championship hangover. We'll see. And we'll cover some trends, some past winners, what this golf course is going to do to these golfers and everything else in between. I'll be very candid with you right out of the gate. I have no idea how the PGA Championship ends. I know Rory's looks good so far. I don't know how it finishes. Hopefully, by the time you're watching this, Rory McIlroy has added another major championship to his resume. We'll find out. Phil Mickelson did not tee it up at the PGA Championship. That, to me, was a surprise. I sat here last week, hand up, sat here last week and said, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to play. No, no doubt about it. Uh, no, he's not. So, no idea when, where, or how we will see Phil Mickelson play golf again, at least on the PGA Tour. Now seemingly the most likely debut for Phil, the Live Golf League, uh, which will be in London in just a few weeks. That, at the moment, feels like the next time we are going to see our defending PGA champion. So obviously more on that, but we're not going far from Tulsa. It's Fort Worth, Texas for this week's Charles Schwab Challenge, Colonial uh, Country Club has been literally, I, I say this a lot, literally a staple on the PGA Tour. It is the longest running event and course combination, uh, non-major championship. The only thing that's run longer at the same place? Yeah, the Masters, Augusta National. So one-ups Colonial in that regard, but this is literally a staple. We've got plenty of great data and we've got plenty of great storylines. Remember, this event a couple of years ago, got the invitational status. So that gives you um, the elevated purse. It gives you the, uh, the the smaller field, only 120 golfers in this field, a lot harder to make it. And obviously with the same cut rules, you're still, you're going to see a larger percentage of golfers find their way to the weekend. This purse is $8.4 million, which when you start throwing around the money, that these guys are seeing on a weekly basis, 8.4 could be a lot, could be a little hard to say. Well, I'll tell you, there are only three regular season events left on the schedule that have a larger purse than this one. So we're we're coming down the home stretch here. Uh, looking at the rest of the schedule, obviously the two major championships that we have remaining, uh, the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, are going to have larger purses, and then the Memorial cranking out 12 million bucks. Is that a typo? I don't think so. Pretty great purse there. RBC Canadian, uh, 8.7. So actually, there's four events that have a larger purse. And then Rocket Mortgage matches the 8.4 million bucks to the golfers. But again, spread out over only 120. More money to go around. Um, which is kind of interesting because we are now, you know, it, it feels different the time of year that we're in. This really is a sprint. We're no longer in a marathon. Remember at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of the season where you get those fall events and you're like, well, the real season hasn't started yet. And then you get to Kapalua and a lot of the big names show up and you're still like, well, the season hasn't started yet. And then you get to, uh, you know, the Florida swing where a lot of the big name golfers make their debut, start to really ramp up their schedule. And you still feel like, hey, season hasn't started yet. Well, We've got Augusta National. We've got the Masters in the rear view. We are, as I speak right now, in the midst of our second major championship. It's a sprint. 
it's a sprint. There's only so many events to go. Every month is going to have a major championship. They've got, we've still got the Memorial. We've got all these invitational events still rocking and rolling. So there is a lot of money to be made over the course of very few weeks. And then, of course, we'll get to the FedEx Cup playoffs uh, before you know it there in August. Looking at some of the storylines for this week. Is Bryson DeChambeau going to play? Again, I was uh, quite surprised he did not try to play the PGA Championship. He is still technically in the field for the Charles Schwab Challenge. Now, there's a couple of things here. Uh, I am recording this at a time where the field has not been finalized. I have the committed list. It is not the official list. Bryson's still in the field. Even if Bryson is in the official field after the Friday 5 p.m. deadline, there is a chance that he withdraws at some point moving forward. I thought I had heard that the next logical spot for Bryson to try to tee it up was going to be at Muirfield Village for Jack's event at the Memorial, but he is still technically in this field. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau had surgery on the hand. He tried. He went out and he played practice rounds three days at Southern Hills, tried to make a go at it. I thought by the time he got to practice round number two and practice round number three, he was going to play. Didn't feel comfortable. It's probably smart. Bryson's got to get healthy. It has not been a good run for him this calendar year. It's been bad play. It's been plagued by injuries. He's got to get right before he returns to the PGA Tour. So I actually commend him. I actually never thought he would play practice rounds and not play the PGA Championship because he's kind of a nut, right? This guy does weird things and he, do, and he works very, very hard. I was surprised to see him not even try it, which to me makes me wonder about his status for this week for the Charles Schwab challenge. If he was, if he didn't even give it a go at the PGA championship, is he going to risk it here in a purse of 8.4 million? Maybe he waits a couple more weeks, but we'll see how that goes. Also, uh, Brooks is not in this field as of right now, Brooks Kepka. I'm hearing rumblings that after this PGA championship, uh, Brooks is going to have some work done on his hip. So the PGA championship might be again, I don't know how reliable these sources, sometimes they're very right, sometimes they are very wrong, but there are rumors and speculation that Brooks Kepka will be having a procedure done on the hip within the next couple of weeks and that this PGA Championship is kind of a last hurrah before that happens. And it makes a lot of sense because he withdrew from the AT&T Byron Nelson uh, without playing, without teeing it up, without starting that event, usually wanting to play his way in to a major championship. So that was kind of red flag number one for Brooks. We'll see if that does actually come to fruition. Maybe one day we'll have a full-on injury report and we can go through this together. The other big storyline that you're going to hear all week long, the major championship hangover. We just go from Tulsa to Fort Worth. Uh, every big player in the world has expended as much energy as possible at the PGA Championship. How are they going to play this week? There is a little bit of statistical evidence that the major championship hangover is real. We'll talk about that when we kind of get down to the fantasy portion of this, but there is a little bit, just a little bit of statistical evidence that that is true. And if it is true, it's going to affect a pretty darn good field. So I'll just look at this field together here with you. Again, these are just the golfers that are committed. This is not the official list because it's not Friday at five o'clock yet. Abe answers in the field. Sam Burns back in action. Tony Finau, Bryson DeChambeau, as I mentioned, still listed inside this field. Fleetwood and, F and Fowler. Let's see. Who else counts as a notable? Taylor Gooch. Can we throw him into that category? We've got Max Homa playing. We've got Victor Hovland playing. Sung J M. So Sung J 
attempted to play a Korean PGA event the week before the PGA Championship. He tested positive for COVID, withdrew from that event, and withdrew from the PGA Championship. So we will see if Sungjae ends up teeing it up in Fort Worth. I imagine... There are protocols uh, and things that he needs to go through, potentially uh, coming back from Korea. I don't know if he's back in the States yet or not. So I think Sung Im very much a question mark of whether he's going to actually tee it up or not. Our defending champion, Jason Kokrak, is in the field for this week. No surprise there. Probably one of the last few events that he plays before he goes over to the Saudi League. Uh, Kevin uh, Colin Morikawa in the field. So we've got both Morikawa. We've got Victor Hovland. We've got the Young Guns showing up. Mito Pereira add his name to the Young Guns. And then you start to look down at the bottom of this list and find some notables. Xander Shoffley teeing it up. Uh, I think I saw that Justin Thomas. Where's JT? Jordan Spieth is in this field. Justin Thomas is in this field. I think that's it for the notables. Oh, no. Will Zalatoris in this field. By the time you're watching this, I hope Will Zalatoris is your PGA champion. Uh, we'll find out. But that field strength has been, well, first of all, in 2020, it was unbelievable. The strength of field in 2020 was like 716, something like that. Remember, this was the very first event back from the COVID shutdown. So we missed 93 days, whatever it was, for the shutdown. This was the very first event back. And if you remember, the first three events back were essentially major championships. Every single golfer, Every one of the big boys was playing in those weeks. It was this event, it was RBC Heritage, and it was one that I cannot remember off the top of my head, but all three of them were just record-breaking strengths of field based on tournament history, and it's obviously gotten weaker. We're not going to get that level of field every single year, but last year was, was stout. Last year was a 436. To put that into perspective, the tour average is 433, so anything above 433 is a stronger field than tour average. I think we will challenge that again. It'll depend on Sungjae. It'll depend on Bryson. It'll depend on some of these guys that have question marks around their name, but it, it, we could push higher than 436, and last year it ranked 25th out of 51 events in terms of strength of field. Last year's winner, Jason Kokrak, 2020, the big one. Daniel Berger, remember that? That was fun. Kevin Na in 2019, Justin Rose, Kevin Kisner, Jordan Spieth going back the last six years. You're generally going to see a winning score 13 to 17 under. That's kind of where this has, has settled. Colonial is not an easy course. Uh, we'll talk about it. There's a little bit of a handshake to start, give you an opportunity to get under par early before you have to hold on for a bit when you get to the horrible horseshoe. But don't really expect this to get to 23, 24, 25 under par. Colonial is usually not going to let that happen. Um, let's talk about Colonial. Again, every year has hosted this event since 1946. The Longest running non-major to be held at the same venue. And what I love about this is we're going back to a Perry Maxwell design, right? Two weeks in a row, Perry Maxwell design, small undulating greens. I said the same thing last week, didn't I? For Southern Hills, small undulating greens, 5,000 square feet on average, almost exactly the average size at Southern Hills, always uh, smaller than PGA Tour average. That's hovers around 6,000 square feet on average. So you're talking about small undulating greens that are, it's a par 70 that has hosted a U.S. Open, has hosted a major championship. So research should be a little bit easier this time around because we've talked about all of this. You get a little bit of a handshake early. Holes number one and two, they're your birdie opportunities. Go get yourself under par, get off to a good start, feel good about the vibes around Colonial because the horrible horseshoe, three, four, and five are going to smack you in the face. This is 
one of the branded three-hole stretches that we have on the schedule. Amen Corner. We've got the Undertow, right? That's at that's at Torrey Pines. Uh, we've got the Horrible Horseshoe. There's like six or seven of these. You can let me know which one's your favorite. Comment below. Tweet at me. All that fun stuff. Uh, but number three, a 483-yard par four. Number four, a 247-yard par three. And number five, a 481-yard par four. Always, always playing over par. That stretch of holes alone, those three holes could play a stroke over par on average, 1.2 over par on average. So making par on each of the three legs, you are gaining on the field. And believe it or not, there are guys who have consistently gained on the field during this stretch. And again, I don't know who's going to be playing this week, so I'm going to read off some of the notables here. Gary Woodland uh, has only played this twice. He's played here twice, and he has gone through the horrible horseshoe in an average of 10.38 strokes. That's under par, right? So he has played it, what is that? Four times each, uh, so eight times. He's played the horrible horseshoe eight times, and he is playing them on average under par. It's good stuff. There, that's a, there's a reason why he's got, I believe, a couple of top 10 finishes here. Bubba Watson has only played it uh, once. He's played it at a 10.5 average. Patrick Cantlay's on the short list. Russell Henley, Troy Merritt also show up as well. Uh, no surprise to see Jason Kokrak, guy who won this event, also playing on average the horrible horseshoe under par, which can kind of take us to the guys who have generally played well at this event. Um, Jordan Spieth, currently committed to the field, has played 36 different rounds at Colonial. Does that surprise you at all? It shouldn't, right? He's a Dallas guy. This is Fort Worth. It's just a skip away. He's got... A win, two more runner-up finishes. Uh, what is that? Three more top tens. He's gaining 2.45 strokes per round playing this event. And you don't have to worry about if we've ever played any other course because, as discussed, longest-running course and event combination uh, outside of major championships. Guys that we think are, are also going to play, the notables here. Um, I'm skipping through some of the guys that I know are not committed to the field. This could this could change. Zach Johnson, believe it or not. So Zach Johnson is going to show up a couple of times. Zach Johnson has played uh, not only uh, the horrible horseshoe well, uh, but he has also played, as you can imagine, Colonial very well, playing it at a 1.2 over 48 rounds. Let me pull this up. That's a big number. Let me get his results here. He's gaining across the board. In every single category, which is not something that you see from Zach Johnson all the time. Now, I will mention, he's missed the cut in two of the last four, so it has gotten worse for him. But he was a winner in 2010. He was a winner in 2012. He finished third and fourth in 14 and 11. A lot of good vibes. Can he summon a little bit of that magic this week? We will certainly find out. The rest of the scorecard, outside of the horrible horseshoe, you're going to notice a couple of things. Um, you're going to notice there's two par fives that are generally 560-ish, and then there is a very long one that could play 600, 625, 640, something in that range. So it's kind of a shorter par five and a longer par five. You'll notice the fours are all over 190 yards, which is a little bit on the rare side. You usually get three somewhere in the 190, 195 range, and then you get the long one that's like 247, which I would have to yank driver on to try to get it up uh, up towards the green. 
And then the par fours are, uh, to me, outside the short par four, this is or the short par five, the fours are really your scoring opportunity. There's a couple of them that are under 400 yards uh, where it is just driver wedge, driver wedge. So your, your, your places to hang on, uh, the long five, the horrible horseshoe, the long three, everything else generally a scoring opportunity for a lot of these guys, driver, wedge, three wood, wedge, not going to be a lot of resistance on those holes. There will be a little bit of a difference in the generosity of the landing areas off the tee. Obviously, comparing it, it's so easy to compare it to the previous week because that's what's so fresh in our minds. And Southern Hills, there's rough out there, but they're, they've widened the fairways at Southern Hills, playing 40 yards wide. Um, the rough is not always very penal. You can get away with it as long as the ball doesn't settle down. This is, this is three-inch thick. Uh, Bermuda rough. This is going to be a little bit different. And as the week goes on, sometimes what you'll see is, you know, they'll cut it for the last time Wednesday or they'll, they'll top it off and cut it for the last time Thursday. And we might not see them touch it. So as the week goes on, it might get gnarlier. It might get a little more thick. I think it's going to put an emphasis on playing out of the fairway, especially if you want to get to some of these pin, pin positions. You know, being able to, even if you're hitting wedge at some of these pin positions, uh, being able to play out of the short grass, being able to apply the spin that you are trying to apply on your golf ball to drive it to a pin location that you're trying to get at that could be tucked, for example, it's a skill set. So playing out of the fairway is going to be absolutely critical. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at some of these um some of these yardages, and you guys know I am not a huge fan of the buckets, right? When you look at the PGA Tour statistics and they tell you how a golfer plays from 175 to 200 yards or how a golfer plays from 125 to 150, there are flaws beyond belief in basically all of those buckets. You know, the reason that they chose 125 to 150, round numbers. It's arbitrary. Humans like things in round numbers 150 to 175 why are we going in 25 yard increments it doesn't make any sense um they're not related to clubs they're literally just related to how far away you are from the hole what happens if you're 148 versus 152 those are two different buckets but they're basically the same shot so there's a lot of flaws with that one thing that i do like a little bit more are the a little bit more not a lot are the hole length buckets particularly the par three hole length buckets. And the reason for that is because everyone is playing from the same spot and everyone has a perfect lie. So even in this world where, you know, and I've described golf as being currently, we're, we're like eight to 12 years behind baseball, right? In terms of advanced metrics and how they just completely changed their game on advanced metrics and saber metrics and money ball and all that stuff. They completely changed their game. They completely changed how, um, ownership, how fans, how everybody consumes that sport. We're like 10 years away from that. We don't even have shot link at every single event. Uh, the PGA Tour doesn't even get data from their major championships in some cases. So we're, we're, we're years away from that. But for all the flaws, the, the whole length buckets on par threes is generally the most pure. Everyone's playing off a tee if they want to. Everyone's playing from the same spot. You can start to build a large enough sample size where this matters. And when you start to dive into the data, you see that there are actually real trends. So what I did is I plugged into the database, essentially the best par four scorers 
uh, on par, th excuse me, the best par three scores on threes that are longer than 190 yards. And I'm not going to give you a scoring average because that wouldn't make any sense. Some, even uh, two holes that are both 190 yard par threes could be very different. One could be very easy. One could be very hard. We're obviously using strokes gained numbers here. Harold Varner III, believe it or not, HV3 is the best player on tour on par threes that are longer than 190 yards. He's gaining a tenth or more of a stroke per hole. That's a lot. Think about that. If every time a hole plays to an average of three, if you play it to a 2.9 or a 2.89 like HV3 is, you are making up a ton of ground on the rest of the field. And that's over 271 holes. It's a massive sample size. So that's what I like about this. The next couple of guys uh, unlikely to play in this event, John Rahm, Alex Noren, Mark Leishman, Cam Percy, they're not going to play. Jason Kokrak is sixth. Zach Johnson is seventh. Notice anything about those guys? Six and seven? Yeah, well, uh, Zach Johnson's won this twice. Jason Kokrak's your defending champion. So if, and, and these are not just par threes at Colonial. These are all the par threes on tour that are longer than 190 yards. We're seeing a through line here. Guys that have had success also rating out highly on this golf course. You know who else is in the top 10? Daniel Berger. So we've got, what, four wins from the guys who are top 10 in this stat? Four wins at Colonial in guys that are top 10 at this stat that's across the tour. That's a pretty strong correlation. I could run the numbers for you, but it's a pretty strong correlation. Um, Luke List is 11. Luke Donald is 12. Abraham Answer is 13. Victor Hovland, 14. And again, all every single one of these guys that I mentioned has played at least 200 par threes that are over 190 yards. So something that I'm going to be looking at over the course of the next few days as we go through research, as you start to break ties, as you start to find out who could potentially win this golf tournament. All of it will be available on my Twitter, rickrungood.com. I'll talk about it on the YouTube channel as we get the pricing and all the odds that come out over the course of the week. Since we're diving into the data, um, I want to do trends. I want to do a little bit of a state of the tour. Let's start with the state of the tour. I think that makes a little bit more sense because uh, it has honestly changed a lot. You know, in most situations, John Rahm is no longer the number one player on tour. In fact, if you look at the last 24 rounds of weighted strokes gained, John Rahm has fallen to 19th. There was a year stretch where I could have plugged in last 24 rounds of weighted strokes gained and seen John Rahm's name atop the board. It was for six months, it was John Rahm, Patrick Cantlay. But the fact that we have seen Rahm, even with his win, but his win was Mexico, which doesn't get as much credit as, you know, a top 10 at a major championship, we've seen him drop to 19th. So as of right now, weighted strokes gained of everyone on tour. Shane Lowry's number one, unlikely. I don't believe he's going to be in the field. Scotty Scheffler, two. Don't believe he's going to be in the field. Roll out uh, Roy McElroy. Roll out Cam Smith. Look who's number five. Harold Varner III. Are we sensing a trend here? We've got a guy who is, in terms of weighted strokes gained, the top five, a top five player on the PGA Tour over his last eight starts. We have a guy who historically dominates long par threes. We've noticed a trend that guys that dominate par threes play well, and even potentially win at Colonial. Take note when a guy's name pops up 
in multiple different things that are generally unconnected. Um, Harold Varner III, there are obviously concerns about HV3. Uh, he won the Saudi International, but he still tried to give it away. You know, there have been times, and I, I actually think it was this, um, I think it was this event last year, or no, it was this event in 2020. He was in, I think he was in the final pairing with Berger, and Berger outduels him and wins that golf tournament when HV3 was, was in the mix. HV3 plays the final pairing with Brooks Kepka, shoots an 81 at the PGA Championship. HV3 touches the lead at Riviera on Sunday a couple of years ago, hits a cold top off of number 10. We're going to remember that HV3 drained an 80-footer in Saudi Arabia to win a couple of months ago. That's what we're going to remember. He tried to kind of cough it up before that, right? I think he made bogeys on 15 and 16. It was... It was getting away from him. And if that ball doesn't drop and he's got six or seven feet coming back um, uh, for his for his second putt, like uh, I'm not sure how great I feel about that. But if you can get past the concern that Harold might melt a little bit, uh, then there is a lot of signs pointing towards him being a very intriguing option for this week. So here are the recent results. After the win at the Saudi International, he missed two straight cuts. Phoenix and Riviera, which there's a lot of guys that struggle the weeks immediately after a win, especially if you don't win a lot. In this case, Harold Varner III certainly falls into that category. So it's really hard to knock him for missing cuts immediately following what is basically the biggest win of his career. Then he started to get it back on track. And this is where the weighted strokes gain metrics come in because he finished T6 at the players, absolute massive field. He got through the cut at the Valspar, did not advance out of his group at the match play, but then he finished his top 25 at the Masters, massive bump there. He finishes T3 at the RBC Heritage. He's going to get a decent bump there, obviously a great finish. And then uh, with his partner at the Zert Classic, he finishes fourth. Now, you guys uh, will know, let's see here. Make sure I get this right. You guys will know before I do how he does at the PGA Championship. I have no idea how he does at the PGA Championship. And almost, that might be a good thing, right? Like, I am not going to be deterred or even more excited based on how he plays at Southern Hills. And I don't think I really care. So if he misses the cut, someone reminds me on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday that HV3 still might be that guy. Uh, if he goes out and wins... All right, maybe we'll maybe we'll skip it and try to come back to HV3 next year because he's going to be uh, so much more expensive. But like, remind me that I don't care what HV3 does at this week's PGA Championship. But when a name keeps popping up like that, it's certainly worth note. JT is sixth. Um, again, he might win the PGA Championship, but let's assume he doesn't. Justin Thomas still does not have a victory in 2022, which would be. Uh, an entire calendar year that he has gone without a win. We're halfway through, a little bit less than halfway through. The last time he went a calendar year without a win was 2013. He played five events that year. Uh, 2014 was his first full season, and every year since then, he's won at least once. I mean, this we are getting into a bit of uncharted territory with Justin Thomas. He's generally a winner, usually gets it done early in the year, generally gets it done at the end of the year, right? He's always been great in like, October. Uh, he's always been great in some of the swing season events. Then you go to Sony and he's probably going to win that. It's just the the fact that he's got so many top 10 finishes and he hasn't 
finished one off yet is not concerning at all. The metrics bear out how good he's actually been. Hideki, seventh. Corey Connors, eighth. Victor Hovland, ninth. Xander Shoffley, tenth. So we are going to see a couple of those guys at the Charles Schwab Challenge. I'm super intrigued with how Victor and how Xander are going to play and finish the PGA Championship. Xander is in a, I don't even want to call it a slump, the tiniest of little funks is what we'll call it. And he is very close to breaking out of it. If he plays well at the PGA Championship, let's fire it up. Let's go. Uh, Victor, almost no matter what happens at the PGA Championship, people are going to look at small undulating greens, and they might be concerned about Victor, although he played well at Colonial last year. The It has just been so polarizing, the opinion on him, in terms of the around the green play. Uh, it's it's a little bit surprising. I get it, but it's a, it's a little bit surprising of of the things that that he's going through. Um, who else do we have here? So that's the top ten. Any other notables that are playing this week? Sam Burns is thirteenth. Zalatoris is fifteenth. Again, this is weighted strokes gain total. Colin Morikawa is twentieth. He'd be someone very interesting uh, to keep an eye on. Max Home was twenty eighth. Got off to a good start at the PGA Championship. I saw that, but he made a couple of bogeys. I've only seen like half of Thursday's round. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm going with here. The fantasy trends. So I've got the fantasy data for the last three years around Colonial. And I want to go back to one of the storylines that we had at the top, which, which is, will there be a major championship hangover? There's a lot of things that you could argue yes or no about. Um, obviously, all the big boys are trying to peak for one specific or four specific times a year, or, or six or eight, whatever is important to them. Uh, there's not a lot of travel involved. You know, going from Tulsa to, to Fort Worth for these guys is going to be a, a very quick trip. There's not, I mean, you're not even changing time zones. It's, it's going to be a fairly easy lift to get from one tournament to another. But with that being said, there have been 14 different golfers in the last three years that are priced over $10,000 on DraftKings. Zero of them have won, which is not entirely a horrible thing. The best finish was a runner-up finish by Jordan Spieth last year. He was over $10,000. The average finish of those 10K or more golfers was 49th. Here's the thing that I think is interesting. 35% of them have missed the cut, which is 5 out of 14. Uh, One of them was in 2020, so it would not have been a year after a major championship. So even if you say 4 out of 13, that's 28%. The average missed cut rate for everyone above 10K is only 20%. So you're talking about an inflated missed cut rate for guys that are more expensive, which I think does lead a little credence to maybe there is something to a major championship hangover. It's a very, very small sample size, obviously, but we're trying to be actionable. We're we're trying to be early. Maybe there is something to a bit of a major championship hangover. And I will say my... Five out of 14 or my four out of 14 is obviously a small sample size, but the other the under, other end of this is also inflated because the all the other 10Ks also include no cut events, right? So the missed cut rate in no cut events is actually a lot smaller than 21%. So I'd argue there's at least a breadcrumb or a nugget of information worth considering for this week. The three winners, Jason Kokrak was $9,000. Daniel Berger, 2020, was 7,700. I remember that. He was 66 to one. He was considered a long shot that week. Um, when we first came, it feels like when we first came out of COVID, we got a lot of 
first-time winners. We got a lot of guys that finally broke through, and you wonder if, whether it was the lack of fans, whether it was the lack of juice, that kind of helped with that. But Berger cashed the 66-1 ticket. He was $7,700 on DraftKings in an absolutely stacked field. And then Kevin Na, $8,000. This could be like your... Your live golf league farewell. Couple of past champions, Coke Rack, Kevin Na seemingly on their way in a couple of weeks to London to tee off at the live golf event. And uh, they've won two of the last three of these. And, and nobody has done it over $9,000. The optimal lineup from last year, and actually have from 2019 as well. Not sure what happened to 2020's optimal lineup. But last year's optimal lineup looks a lot like what this year's optimal lineup could look like. It scored 599 points. It cost $49,300. It was Jason Kokrak, $9,000. He scored 114.5 points. Jordan Spieth, that runner-up finish that we referenced earlier, he was 11,200, scored 105.5 points. Patton Kazire also scored 105.5. He did it at 7,400 bucks. Then we went with then we had Sebastian Munoz, Ian Poulter, Troy Merritt at 7,700 and $7,000 respectively. So that's four different golfers in the $7,000 range, one above 11K, one at $9,000 flat, 49,300 leaving $700 on the table. The year prior was, I believe, even more significant. Okay, this is 2019. 2019, the optimals were 47,000, 46,600, and 48,900. This says historically, been an event that you probably want to lean into a little bit of fading the top of the board. You know, the 10K guys who have historically underperformed, the 7 and 8K guys have historically performed a lot better. The optimal lineups, again, small sample sizes, but are generally leaving a lot of money on the table. Uh, you can argue that these rounds can go sideways with a lot of volatility during the horrible horseshoe. You could argue that, uh, you know, this, this would be like the week after playing a Super Bowl, right? Imagine if the teams had to play the week after playing the Super Bowl. You probably wouldn't get a lot of great performances. And historically, we have not gotten a lot of great performances around uh, the week after a major championship. So what I'll do over the course of the next couple of days is I will pull all of the data for weeks after major championships, not necessarily weeks after the PGA championship. So we can kind of add more data to the data set. We can start to learn if there is anything there. And I, I expect what we could find is that the miscut rate for the more expensive golfers is going to end up being higher than tour average. I don't know yet. We're going to find out. We'll put the data behind it. Um, there's going to be a lot of Really interesting stuff coming out this week because when we have our four major championships, everybody dives in days earlier than normal. Every trend has been unearthed. Uh, every nugget about the golf course has been discussed and rediscussed. And then usually what happens is there's a content hangover the week after a major championship. And those who only come out for majors go back to doing whatever they're doing. And nobody wants to go full on in on the Charles Schwab challenge when they just crowned a new PGA champion. We saw it last year with Phil, right? Like Phil sucked up so much oxygen. We were talking about it for weeks and months. It was hard to get people to actually focus on an event that was going on in Fort Worth. But we're going to try to do our best for that uh, this week. Trends, research data, 
always coming your way. All the information that I've provided to you in this episode has come from my website, rickrungood.com. I'll add more to it uh, this week, and we'll start to talk about post-major championship stuff. Make sure to follow me on Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, uh, make sure to leave those as well. But otherwise, this has been 300 Yards to Unknown. Catch you next time.